I was in a coma for six weeks while the doctors told my wife I was going to die. When I woke up, she told me the most fantastic story. My team kept running the business without me. Freelancers reached out to my team and said, we will do whatever it takes as long as Craig's in the hospital. I consider that the greatest accomplishment in my career. My name is Craig Andrews, and this is the Leaders and Legacies podcast, where we talk to leaders creating an impact beyond themselves. At the end of today's interview, I'll tell you how you can be the next leader featured on this show. Today, I want to welcome Jim James. He has built uh, businesses from a suitcase over the last 25 years using public relations. He started East West Public Relations in 1995 and has opened offices in Singapore, China, India, and the UK, serving over 500 clients. In China, Jim set up uh, the business as the official importer of Morgan Motor Company sports cars, held the position of interim CEO of Lotus, and was the founding president of EO Network Beijing Chapter. That's the entrepreneurial organization. It is, he established the British Business Awards and was the vice chair of the Chamber of Commerce. He returned to the UK in 2019 and hosts the Unnoticed Entrepreneur, uh, he has a book by the same title, and he has a radio show by the same title. And um, and now he uses tech to help people get noticed. Jim, welcome. Craig, thank you for the very, very kind introduction. Good to see you. It's good to see you. You know, and just so everybody knows, I was on your podcast, you know, not that long ago, and um, and I remember connecting about China because I've traveled a lot in China, but you've lived there and you've run businesses there. What tell us about that? Yes, Craig. Yeah, and you were a wonderful, wonderful guest on this show. And thanks for inviting me to be on your show. I moved to Asia first of all in 1995, as you you know, as you mentioned, to start a PR business uh, in the music business, actually uh, music and uh, and IT. And then 2001 saw China was exceeding to WTO and it all looked like it was going to be fantastic. So I moved there 2004 to study some Chinese. And then 2006, up sticks from Singapore and, and same suitcase, actually, from uh, the first move, went to Beijing and started East-West Public Relations there. And you know, over the next couple of years, really you know, fell in love with China and all the things that it had to offer there, not least the opportunities. And it was really a, a thriving time to be there. And of course, we had the Olympics in 2008 and, you know, met my wife. We had our first daughter and then started to import Morgan sports cars because we actually bought the first one, uh, took it into China as a company car for my public relations company. And uh, people liked it so much that I thought, why don't I do the business of importing it? So I lived there for 13 years in Beijing and traveled around uh, a fair amount, had a few different roles, as you've mentioned, and it was really a fascinating time, Craig. Came back to England 2019, just in time to escape COVID. So help, help me figure out the dates. So <clears throat> if I take 13 and subtract it from 2019, I don't get 95. 
Oh no, because I was in Singapore first. Singapore oh, okay. nine, Singapore ninety five to two thousand and six, and then two thousand six through to two thousand nineteen in China. So, kind of a I did Singapore first because we consider the Asia light. It was the kind of the easy choice to start with. But in ninety five, yeah, we you know it was the beginnings of uh, of Asia opening up. You know, and I was I was one of the reasons I was interested. I'm trying to think the first time I was in Beijing. And I think it was 2000. And there are a few cities I've seen change as rapidly as Beijing. And, you know, what, uh, and, and I haven't been back there for a number of years. Obviously, you've been there a lot sooner than I have, uh, a lot more recently than I have. But the, you know, what, what was your take on the change that you saw going through Beijing? Well, Beijing changed on lots of different levels, Craig, really. But, uh, you know, overall, it was a, an amazingly uh, sort of dynamic time. It changed architecturally. You know, the whole of Chang'anjie, the main the main street where it goes down to Forbidden City, for example, that went from being some amazing buildings down towards Tiananmen Square um, to getting this sort of ribbon effect, looking more and more like sort of Chicago or New York with these high rises being built. But also we had the infrastructure. So we had new airports being built. We had new railway systems being built. Uh, we also had the social architecture of new restaurants and new cinemas and shopping centers and new schools. It became a very livable uh, place, to be honest. Um, great infrastructure, good public transport, good uh, private transport, great food. But with that as well, Craig, came terrible pollution. Yeah. And so, you know, we would have an AQI, an air quality index, on some days of 380, right? And you really couldn't see across the street. And it was cement dust. It was coal dust from Shanxi province. It was pollution of, you know, there were like, um, you know, Beijing at one stage was 8 million people, and then it grew to 22 million people when I was there. Um, and at the beginning, there were like three or four million cars and they were selling the best part of two or three million cars per year. You know, if you think about like that kind of scale. So you could literally look back at your old photographs and see, you know, streets that you could kind of walk across or down. And each year, progressively longer and longer traffic jams at every traffic light and more and more people trying to get into the subways. So it was urban congestion. Um but it was also emotional stimulation and professional stimulation because there's so many amazing people going there at that time. So, you know, my wife's from Shanghai, but we went to Chengdu, for example, where I had a, a dealership for the car business. Uh, we bought a house in in Hainan or an apartment in Hainan and just saw it being go from, you know, kind of palm trees and sand to being, you know, amazing developments. It was an amazing opportunity to see a society and civilization grow before your very eyes. Yeah, and Hainan is that's an island down the south, and that's how far? Yeah, you know, how long of a plane flight is it from Beijing to Hainan? Yeah, so that's a three-hour flight. It's you know it's on the same latitude as Vietnam. Right, wow. so you people forget, um, yeah, it's like crossing from New York across to LA is I think three hours, isn't it? Um, so, you know, it's a big country, China. People forget it's the same kind of landmass as America, but with 
four or 1.2 billion people on it as opposed to 300 million and most people live on the eastern seaboard so it's a bit like most people living from provincetown uh, down to key west um because the the water um and the seaboard of the east is what's inhabitable whereas once you get west of beijing and you get across to shansi province and you really get into kind of more desert because across from that is mongolia russia you know india and and himalayas right so people forget geography and just the climate of china uh means that a lot of people live in a literal uh as in like uh l-i-t-t-r-o-l uh live on the coastal or on the waterways so has over 100 cities with over 100 million people in it you know it's pretty incredible uh no sorry over 100 cities with over a million people uh living in them um, so the scale of China is fantastic. Amazing. Now, one of the things that happens in Beijing that surprised me the first time I saw it was these sandstorms. Uh, what, yeah. What's it? I, I was not there for one. I was there for the aftermath of one. And it looked near apocalyptic. Uh, what What's it like to live through a sandstorm there? Well, I think the answer is you live inside when you're living through it. I mean, you just don't go out. And the uh, the car would have, in effect, like a snow coating depth of dust. And so it would just look as though someone had got a big, you know, sprinkler and just shook red sand over everything. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty amazing, actually, how it all just gets lifted up and just shipped east from Mongolia. Um and, you know, for the children, of course, it meant being indoors. And when we had, uh, when they had SARS, China was already very prepared for SARS because with pollution and things like the Sahara Desert, uh, the um, Mongolian sandstorms, people had masks. People were used to working, you know, remotely um, because China has these moments of kind of anti-human existence climatography and uh, and pollution having said that you know china then did a lot of work to crack down on this so it started to shut down factories in and around beijing for example it started to plant out trees so massive massive tree planting programs forestation programs across china uh, on a scale that isn't really matched anywhere else around the world uh, move to electric cars for example as we've seen in china has been much quicker than anywhere else so the Chinese, in fairness to them, have been very, very assertive about taking control of that kind of environmental issue. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. That's good to hear. Now, you so you built entire teams in China and, and in, in the Far East. And what, what was that like? It's I would imagine as a Westerner, there were a few surprises. Yeah, I, I maybe a, a couple of different team sets I I was responsible for. So um, with my own company, with the PR business, I moved from Singapore to China. So I had a Singapore team and a Beijing team. And then I opened an office in India, which, by the way, I don't recommend in one lifetime. You try and set up businesses in, in, in China and uh, India in one lifetime. Uh, it's it's uh, foolish really but i had some people in india who wanted to start the business um and wanted to use the brand and so uh it, it seemed like it'd be a good idea at the time 
You know, intercultural communications, Craig, is a world into its own. Even if you just have a Westerner and a group of Singaporeans who speak English and, well, ethnically similar, have different backgrounds of being Malay or Chinese or Indian. Um, and then the mainland Chinese, you know, the mainland Chinese, a bit like Americans, you know, you don't really think of yourself as all Americans. Do you? I mean, you think of yourself either a West Coast or an East Coast or, you know, a Texan. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you, I went to Chapel Hill, you know, in North Carolina, and there's a huge amount of rivalry between the, you know, the Tar Heels and the NC State people, right? So in China, if you're building a team, you you might have a common language of Mandarin, Um but there's often distrust between people from the provinces, for example, in the cities. And then you have educational differences. So a big part of building a sort of a cross-cultural team is really about understanding the different places that everyone comes from in the first place before they even get to the table. You know, and that that takes a lot of patience and a lot of attention, really. Um, and, you know, I built a team as well when I ran Lotus, I found, you know, a huge amount of distrust because people also were looking after their own interests. And when I was running the Lotus business, I wasn't running my own company. I was running the company for someone else. And there's a whole bunch of dynamics that that come into play. And that'll happen in any culture, I'm sure, right? If you're running different teams. But the other dimension of running a company or a team in Asia, other than the, you know, the geography and the culture and the class and so on, is the cultural dimension. And, you know, in the West, the saying is that we're driven by guilt, Craig, right? Because we come from basically a, you know, a Christian background where we, we all believe in judgment. Even if we don't believe that we're Christians, underlying societal norms are around, around judgment and about, you know, societal mm-hmm. values. In Asia, the view is that people are um, driven by shame hmm. because it's it's an atheist. It's not a Christian society, right? It's a Buddhist society. Um, so there isn't a higher order. You're you're judged by yourself. Um, and but what really matters, and in, in places like China where they've worked hard to get rid of religion, is around face about being what we call face respect for each right. other. So when you're coming to managing teams, what you find is that the the different cultural drivers, one's got guilt, one's got shame. And then in Asia, the way that they implement that kind of social hierarchy is through Confucian logic. And Confucian is this old, you know, Confucius is that the oldest male in society will rule regardless of merit, right? When it justifies mm-hmm emperors, whether it's people like Lee Kuan Yew that managed to stay in power and have his family, or whether it's Xi Jinping, this, this sort of oldest male. And it's a very stereotype typical and also very sexist. Now, as an eldest male, uh, and often the employer, and as a foreigner, you're given a lot of authority as, a, as, a, as, a, as an owner, as an entrepreneur. And that's great if you want to tell everyone what to do. But you and I both know, Craig, that telling everyone what to do is yesterday's business strategy especially if you're then going to singapore to run a team and and india to run a team you need the team to run itself while you're gone right so so one of the fundamental challenges that i had in in the pr business in china and in the car business and in the lotus business 
uh, I was running three companies at the same time, was to get the Chinese to to not see me as the ultimate authority, to get them to take decisions for themselves. And that was so antithetical to the structure of their societal behavior. So things like leadership training, things like giving people permission to take control and being very explicit about the fact that I was giving them some some tangible form of authority, a hat, a shirt, a token for the desk that said, you, you have some authority now, don't abuse it. So running the teams across different societies and a different cultures was very was very very interesting and it take actually took as much time as running the business craig but fascinating that that's really insightful and 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 i could see uh i could see my yeah i i've studied at a japanese university i've you know lived in asia i could see myself easily getting tripped up by that very pitfall even with my more intimate knowledge than the average westerner and that that's such a critical insight. And when you were talking about the difference between duty and shame, the other thing that came to mind was the difference, I'm sorry, between um, uh, guilt and guilt shame. Guilt and shame, yeah. Uh, the other thing that came to mind was duty versus honor. Would you see a similar difference, you know, where honor is valued in the West and duty is valued in the East? Well, I suppose what the, the difference if fundamentally is whether it's an internal driver or an external driver, isn't it? So it depends if you see duty as being, you know, you, you have a sense of duty um, and do you, do you see honor being internally driven or externally driven? The point being that with the guilt and the shame is that guilt is something that we feel internally. I feel guilty about something, but someone can't make me feel guilty. They might try, but ultimately I can decide, right? But shame is where people, other people shame you. Other people actively go out and say, this person is not okay, right? Yeah. Um, But, you know, Asian people have a great sense of honor and a great sense of pride and and duty. So I don't know, Craig, whether whether I would be clever enough to figure out whether those were internal or external. The difference is that what you'll see, for example, in, in, let's say, take education, in school in England, you'd never publish a class list. You'd never publish a list of the children's performance in mm. the classroom, right? But my daughter would come home and they have published in the classroom the rankings of how all the eight-year-olds have done in the math test, right? And yeah. when you go and when you go to to the evening with the teachers, they go and show you, yeah. see how your daughter is doing compared and not compared to her last score. Look how she's doing compared to the other children. That That's what I mean about face. So the idea is that you feel embarrassed and therefore you're motivated by embarrassment. No, and that's, that, that's a good distinction. Now, you said you had some moment where you felt like your leadership was, you know, kind of put to the test over there. Yeah, more than one occasion. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think um, leadership in terms of being put to the test. I think that when when you say test, I think it's about whether you believe enough in what you're doing 
um, to follow through the difficult moments. Hmm. If you see what I mean, because as a foreigner, no one questioned me. I, uh, no one, I didn't have any members of staff ever say, Jim, you're wrong. But, but sometimes you went through situations where um, things were not working out properly. I uncovered in Lotus, for example, some goings on that shouldn't have been going on. Um, and people came to talk to me about it. And I thought, crikey, this, I wasn't, hoping to uncover these things have i have i done the wrong thing i actually kind of was unlocking uh you know a room that had some nasty things inside it mm. and and so i was getting a lot of pushback from certain people in the organization who didn't want anyone to go near that room and so but you're thinking well the what i believe to be right is to go down that path but but people are saying we you know we're we're management. We don't, we don't talk about those things in front of these people. And I was like, well, we're management. Therefore we should talk about these things in front of other people, because these are the things that are fundamentally bottlenecks to the company moving forward. So I persevered. And in the end, it all resolved itself. But Craig, I think this idea that sometimes when you're in a foreign land, you don't have the same kind of support infrastructure and you don't have the same reinforcement because other people around you are not doing these things so challenge as much as i think was more internal ironically enough we talked about internal external challenge was more like am i am i doing the right thing to continue challenging when other people around me uh are not doing that kind of management that kind of management technique it would be easier not to do that well and what an incredible example, because, you know, I think as we look through time, the, you know, some of the people that have made the biggest impacts are those that have said, you know what, what I'm seeing is wrong and I'm going to stand against it, despite all pressure to comply. And this is not uniquely an Asian thing. No, we're seeing that now in America, aren't we, really? I mean, uh, that... Um the the desire of some people to do what they believe is right, even though um, it may not seem to be what everyone else would like to do, for me is one of the hallmarks of of a brave leader, right? I mean, we know there are lots of different kinds of leaders, right? But to have the courage of your convictions almost for me is one of the definitions of being a, a leader, isn't it, right? That, that if you're living with compromise in yourself, then you can't really be a leader with a full heart. And that's part of what, you know, I personally have always worked towards. Uh, and sometimes, you know, at personal cost. But longer term, I think, then you can look at yourself, you know, in the mirror. Absolutely. Now, you left Asia and you moved back to the UK, and it was more than just a geographical transition. You made a, a big transition. Yes, Craig. And I think we're referring to the fact that what I do today has really kind of nothing to do with what I did in Asia, right? Um, you know, in Asia, I had a PR business in Singapore and also an internet business there. Um, and in China, we had the car business and a PR business, internet business, uh, and a drinks business, actually, too. Um, when I came back to England, I was working a little while with half a head and half a mind in Asia, you know, I'd go back to Singapore to do some work because we had COVID. So we couldn't go back to China. 
But you know, within a very short amount of time, I I really thought, Craig, that I I don't want to live my life where I used to be. I want to live my life where I want to be. And in a way, that's the hardest challenge of all as an entrepreneur, um, because it's easy to carry on doing what you were doing before because it is still working. But there's kind of a diminishing marginal returns from that. And what I realized was that the longer I was away from Asia, um, I would either, you know, I would start to lose what I knew about Asia, become less and less valuable. I would then need to be an expert to Asians into Europe. And I decided I I didn't want to be flying to Asia and missing my children. And I love the fact that I can take the school every day and stuff like that. So, so I decided to sell my PR business in Singapore. Um, we didn't try and keep the car business in China. And I decided to to change entirely what I do, Craig. So to go from working with big companies, I decided to start the Unnoticed Entrepreneur franchise, really, or, or business, which is where I use what I've learned by starting businesses and working with over 500 clients with my PR business. And I would I would serve entrepreneurs who need that guidance but can't afford an agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I changed the model from being, you know, one agency with one big B2B client to being me with a podcast and a book and training programs where I can serve, frankly, people who I think need it uh, most of all, which are those great people that have got great ideas, but just don't know how to get scale, don't know how to get a brand. Um, And so that's really what I decided to do. So I dedicated the last three years to doing to doing that and building the brand the podcast which you've been on kindly in the book um and ironically enough Craig and I was thinking about this the other day you know the business now really is I listen to people for a living which is great yeah. because I interview people on my podcast like yourself and I've had over 300 guests now and they explain to me how as entrepreneurs they get noticed and I'm able to now be a channel for that information through the podcast, the books, the videos, and share that with other people. Um, so I've really gone from one position where I was selling things to people to really having a business where I get to listen and learn from people around the world. And then just to help structure that and share that with people that I think would benefit from it. And that is and that is such a service. So uh, help me understand this. So <clears throat> you say uh, PR for people who generally can't afford it. What's, you know, help me wrap my head around that because, you know, normally when I think about that, I think about, you know, an expensive firm, perhaps out of New York, uh, that's going to charge a fortune and, you know, the, the business will go bankrupt before I'm done paying their, their retainer. Yeah. And I think the point really is that public relations and media relations is not for everybody. And what I'm really looking at is um, all of the tools and the strategies that, entrepreneurs can use that are free you know and so what i do i have a a a facebook group called the unnoticed entrepreneur group and on my podcast for example i have people craig who come on and talk about not just pr but marketing the use of a quick response code um the use of tools like marketing boost where you can give someone free hotel rooms for example and i'm especially leaning in craig to more and more of the content creation tools that are available through ai for example so the, the challenge with PR agencies, and I ran one myself for 25 years, is we sell we sell companies what we want them to buy from us, right? We sell them a press release. We sell them an interview. 
But so many companies get that interview and then nothing really happens. So it's it's not really serving the client, it's serving the agency. There are so many, so many ways that an entrepreneur can get noticed uh, that are free and cost effective. And that feels kind of a much more kind of wholesome uh, lesson um, that I can share, Craig, with people. Well, that's an, that's a very valuable lesson. You know, there's there's some people with that they're very skilled with powerful messages that should get out, and you're removing that barrier for them. Hey, that's that's really the idea, yeah. And to try and pull it all together, because what most entrepreneurs don't have is one place to go to find that information. So if you go on Facebook, there's a thousand and one ads. You know, take this course, buy this ad. Da, da, da. Um, but there isn't a trusted advisor. There isn't one place where it's coming together. And the difference with what I'm doing is I have fellow entrepreneurs explain what they do, Craig, as opposed to me being a journalist or a, a salesperson explaining what they should do. So the idea, as you've been on, on the show yourself, Craig, it's people like you explaining how you get yourself noticed so that another entrepreneur can trust that your advice is advice that they could use and it would be genuine and usable. Well, well, thank you for sharing that. How do how do people reach you? I mean, so you you have the Unnoticed Entrepreneur podcast, you've got the Unnoticed Entrepreneur book, and you now have a radio show uh, on Radio Bath. I'm assuming for those in the U.S. aren't intimate with the uh, UK geography, Bath is a city in yeah. in the UK. Yeah, it's and, on the west side of England. Yeah. Okay. And so you have a radio show in Bath. Yeah, it's a community radio and uh, started up by a group of uh, volunteers here in the, in, uh, in the West Country. And uh, so they do a wonderful job. It's available on digital radio, actually. So you can find it, Radio Bath. Um, you don't have to listen to it in the bath, although you could if you wanted to. Bath is a very famous uh, city down here in the West Country. Um, but yet in terms of getting hold of me, Craig, um, I'm just jimajames.com is my website. And if they come to my website, jimajames.com, then they can find all the different assets uh, that they want to. I'm also on Linktree at jimajames as well. So one of those two places will get you to everything that I've produced and welcome really any outreach or connections and any entrepreneurs that would love to come on the show. I would happily have a chat with them. Well, I do hope people reach out because that's a ton of value that you're offering to entrepreneurs uh, that will help them promote their business. And uh, Jim, I want to thank you for being on Leaders and Legacies today. Greg, thank you so much for inviting me on your amazing podcast. I really appreciate you giving me the time to to share what I'm doing and you know, trying to leave a bit of a legacy as you are. Um, so I'm following in your footsteps. Well, thank you. You're very kind. All right. Have a good day. You too. This is Craig Andrews. I want to thank you for listening to the Leaders and Legacies podcast. We're looking for leaders to share how they're making an impact beyond themselves. If that's you, please go to alliesforme.com slash guest and sign up there. If you got something out of this interview, we would love you to share this episode on social media. Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. 
If you know someone who would be a great guest, tag them on social media and let them know about the show, including the hashtag Leaders and Legacies. I love seeing your posts and suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss anything, please go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show. It means a lot to me. It means a lot to my team. If you want to know more, please go to alliesforme.com or follow me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.